Hello, and welcome to another Veterinary Team Training Podcast. My name is Amy Newfield, and I'm both the host and owner of Vet Team Training. Please check out all my other blogs, vlogs, and podcasts at vetteamtraining.com. And I know I've already upset some of you. You saw the title, it made you start listening, and you automatically are angry at me. I don't blame you. I put that title out there to be inflammatory and to get you to listen. The vet industry is pissing off pet owners. Wow. And how dare I put that title? I mean, the veterinary industry is already tired, burned out, full of compassion fatigue. We don't get paid enough. And the pet owners, honestly, they shit on us. So how dare I put that title out there? I totally understand what you're saying. And I understand where you're coming from. And yeah, I totally agree. There's a lot of really horrible clients out there. And there's a lot of really terrible things that people do to our veterinary professionals that are intolerable. We have threats made against us. We're told that we're less than. We are told that we're money grubbing. We're told that we hate animals. None of these things are true. We all went into this industry because we very much love pets and uh, and animals, and we wanna preserve the pet owner bond. And so when I put this title out there, for many of you, you were like, how dare you? We're literally, literally exhausting ourselves over these people. cannot be the cause. But for many of us, we are a cause and we have to acknowledge that. Now, I know what you're saying. We can't be a cause, Amy. Listen, again, I am not condoning the behavior of the majority of the clients and the pet owners that we're seeing. A lot of them, really honestly, they should go to, you know, pet owner jail. Some of them should actually be in jail. They're pretty terrible people. But one of the things that we're doing is causing these pet owners to be very angry and we're doing it over and over. And I would even have to guess that the vast majority of us are doing this one thing. So I am talking about this very one thing that is contributing to the anxiety, the anger, and the frustration of the pet owners that we keep doing over and over and we don't even recognize it's a problem. So let's dive into this. First, let's go back into the history of time of veterinary medicine. Let's talk about the days of James Harriet. James Harriet wrote the book, All Creatures Great and Small, in the 70s, but it was actually set to be in the 1930s, specifically around 1937 to 1939. And it it basically follows a veterinarian. It's a very interesting read. If you haven't read it, definitely check it out because some of the parts are eye-opening about how far the veterinary industry has come. The one thing that people really liked about the book was it was really true for veterinarians in that time period, and it was relatable. It was the struggles that people were going through, but it was also the struggles of veterinarian in the time of the 1930s. There are some very vivid parts of that book that I definitely remember. One of which was him neutering a dog on his kitchen table. And I just thought that was wild. But actually, that was probably really what happened. The other thing that resonated with me was how he actually utilized the pet owner or, you know, the livestock farmer or whatever it was. He utilized them in the procedure. A lot of times they held the dog. They helped with the procedure itself. Okay, so that was medicine in the the 30s. Now we fast forward to the 1970s when veterinary technology actually became a profession. This was the induction of the very first college education program for veterinary technology. The reason why veterinary technology became a college-based program, actually in New York, that was the very first one, was because veterinarians needed to have assistance. And prior to that, guess who they were using? Their friends, their family, their family members, their, you know, a good 
friend that they may or may not have trained. And what they found is formal education really did help. And so we now see the introduction of veterinary technicians. Therefore, we no longer needed pet owners to help with procedures. I came around in veterinary medicine in the 90s. I graduated from school. And pet owners very much were in the exam rooms when it came to just general practice things. They saw us draw blood in front of them. They saw us give vaccines, but they very much stayed up front when it came to anything surgical, emergency related, or any type of procedure. So again, we would draw blood for like an annual heartworm test in front of them, but everything else other than vaccines was done in quote unquote the back. This was in the 90s. Now we fast forward and we've been through a pandemic and we all went through something called curbside. We didn't know what it was. We made it up very quickly within like a week of the pandemic occurring. You heard the term curbside. Veterinary clinics are going curbside. It is now 2022 um, and before we blink an eye, it'll probably be 2023 and still a vast majority of our hospitals are doing curbside. So here's the trajectory of where we're at currently. And there's been a pandemic. So I'm going to acknowledge that there's a pandemic. The problem is, and the reason why veterinary medicine is currently pissing off pet owners is because we're afraid of pet owners. And I don't even think it has to do largely with the pandemic. We were seeing this trend prior to the pandemic. It's just that the pandemic has exasperated this current issue. What do I mean? I know what you're saying. Yeah, I'm afraid of the angry ones. No, you're just afraid of people. The reality is, is that the vast majority of us went into veterinary medicine because we resonate better with pets than we do with people. I'm okay with saying that. I have no qualms saying, listen, I like animals better than I like people. I trust animals more than I trust people. Like an animal tells me what's up. They tell me whether or not they like me or they don't like me. There's no shadiness with an animal. I know very much pretty quickly whether or not that pet likes me or doesn't like me. And I can, once I gain the trust of an animal, my goodness, that's an amazing feeling. But with people, it can be very hard. It's hard to read body language, communication, people lie, you know. I'm not sure about the rest of you, but me trusting people, it's hard. But I definitely trust my own pets, hands down, not a question asked. I know whether or not they're telling me the truth. Um, and yeah, maybe they try to get away with something small here and there. But for the most part, they're not liars to me, which is pretty awesome. So when we think about that and just our own feelings towards, I don't know, people in general, peopling is really hard for us. A lot of us are also introverts. Listen, I hear you. I I, I know that we've talked about this uh, a lot in veterinary medicine. Is there a higher percentage of introverts compared to the general population? I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I do think a lot of us understand what it is to be an introvert and that need of being without people in our lives to regain our energy. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel. At the end of the day, I just kind of want to be alone so that I can re-energize and being alone actually gives me more energy. I do like people. I, <laughs> by the end of this podcast, you're going to think I hate all people. That's not true. But what I'm saying is, is that we are to some level not people people right? I know that sounds weird. We're not people people. We're animal people. Yes, definitely that. We're medicine people. Mm, got that checked off. I'm a science person. Yes, absolutely. I love science. I am a healer. I am all of those things. But when it comes to my connection with people, I have actually improved my empathy and compassionate skills as I've gotten older. And in fact, the much younger version of Amy Newfield would not be making this podcast. In fact, she'd probably be very cynical and she would have probably shut this podcast off in the very beginning because of the title alone. But the older Amy Newfield is open to ideas and suggestions on ways of connecting with people. 
So why are we afraid with people? Because we don't want to show them what we're doing. Uh, for the vast majority of us, this includes pretty much everything. I just, I, I just had a friend, I'm laughing, because I just had a friend who contacted me via text. And this is what he said. He said, they just took my kitten to the back to give him a vaccine. And I shot back, what? Question mark, exclamation mark. And he wrote, I had no idea they were going to remove him from me. They literally just grabbed him and said, oh, we'll be right back. We're just going to go give him his vaccine. And they took him away. Okay. Breathing a sigh, a deep sigh here. <sighs> Why are we doing that? That's completely insane. And this was a actual credentialed vet tech who took this eight-week-old kitten to the quote-unquote back to give a vaccine because they're not comfortable giving an injection in front of this person. Why are they not comfortable giving an injection in front of, of, of this person? I mean, parents go in all the time and see their children, their babies get poked and prodded with vaccines or blood draws or a variety of things. And we don't tell the parent, like, I'm going to take your baby to the back. That's not a thing that we do. So why is it that veterinary professionals, and it's not even just veterinarians, it's vet techs, it's vet assistants, it's everybody, cannot handle even doing a vaccine in front of the clients. And then he messaged me this. And this really got my blood boiling. And honestly, this was the catalyst for this podcast because he sent me a text that said, oh, don't worry. They said he did great, even in front of the barking dogs. Oh, my God, people. Oh, my God. My head's spinning around just thinking about that text message, because here's what I know to be true. This is an eight week old kitten and it's formable years of whether or not we teach it that a vet clinic is a good place or a bad place. And what did we do? We removed it from the only person it really knows, took it, quote unquote, to the back with an utter stranger, had it barking dogs, showed it to a bunch of barking dogs like, here, baby kitten, let's hope these barking dogs don't eat you. What is that baby kitten supposed to think? They don't even know if that kitten's ever heard a dog barking before. They then stabbed it with a needle, inflicting pain. And yes, it's not like we're chopping off a leg, but we're inflicting pain. And then we're going to cart it through the vet clinic with all those terrible smells and sounds and beeping noises and bring it back to its owner. And then we wonder why cats want to murder us later on. I mean, honestly, what the hell are we doing? So there were so many things gone wrong there in terms of just fear-free behavior things that we could have changed to the fact that this veterinary professional was uncomfortable vaccinating in front of this individual. Like you've got to be kidding me. So I want you now to put yourself in that pet owner's shoes. In fact, I'm going to ramp it up. I'm going to paint a picture for you and hopefully your compassion and empathy comes out. I want you to picture this. You open the door and your beloved dog who normally behaves itself. You open the door to like, you know, walk out the front door, maybe get the mail or to go grab your kid from the school bus. And your dog just decided to have a moment of insanity. It's a beautiful spring day. They've been locked up for winter, you know, and they can see there's birds and flowers and it's, it's great and sunny. They zip past you at 100 miles an hour and you scream their name. You're like, Brownie, don't do that. But Brownie isn't listening because Brownie has a taste of freedom and Brownie sees the sun and the birds. It has been snowing like it has been up here in New England this entire winter. And Brownie is now in the middle of a street. And unfortunately, Brownie gets hit by a car in front of your face. And your beloved pet, your beloved fur kid, your beloved fur baby is laying now in the middle of the road and you can see there's blood coming from a leg and he's screaming, and you don't know what to do. 
And in that moment, your brain is trying to process everything that happened and the car per, you know, driver gets out and goes, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And part of you wants to scream and punch this person even though you know it's not their fault. And the other part of you sees your kid lying in the middle of the road. And I want you to picture you scraping your dog off of the pavement and going, I can't talk to you, I have to get to a vet clinic. And now you, what are you doing? You don't even know where your car is. Now you're running inside, holding this 50, 60 pound dogs in your arms. You're grabbing your car keys. You're opening up your car. You're putting the dog in the backseat and you're repeating over and over. It's going to be okay. Mommy loves you. It's going to be okay. Mommy loves you. We're going to get to the vet clinic, please. It's okay. I'm here for you. And then you go into the vet clinic and they say to you, Hi, what's going on? My dog just got hit by a car. Please save him. Please save him. And they say to you, okay, we're going to take him to the back. Yeah. And they take him away to the back. And now you are up front alone. And it's quiet. And the front office receptionist says to you, can you fill out some paperwork? <laughs> I'm laughing because... How is that person supposed to fill out paperwork? They just saw a very traumatic event and we're asking them to fill out paperwork. And then they say, it's gonna cost between 300 to $500 to stabilize your dog. Are you okay with that? I don't even know my name. I'm not even sure how I got here. I just watched my dog get hit by a car. This is my kid. You know, this is my fur baby. And now my kid's not here. How, what's going on with him? What is going on with, is he okay? I don't know, ma'am. What I need you to do is fill out this paperwork. Well, I really want to know, is he all right? I need you to fill out this paperwork. Okay, okay, but when am I going to know? When am I going to know? When am I going to know? I mean, a lot of us suffer from anxiety. Can you even imagine the feeling that this individual is going through? And then we keep telling them, you're just going to have to be patient. You're just going to have to wait. You're just going to have to be patient. You're just going to have to wait. And the time keeps on ticking on and on. And even if it only seems like a couple of minutes to us in the back trying to take care of that dog, it seems like hours to that individual. And so here's my challenge to all of you. We have a lot of these archaic laws and rules that have actually come into place in the last, you know, maybe 80 years, maybe less than that, probably only 50 years, where we have distanced the pet owner away from us causing them to become more pissed off at us. And we have to recognize that veterinary industry has done this because what is the harm of allowing people to come to the back to stay with their pets? And I know a lot of you are like, well, there's a ton of harm, Amy. They can't handle that. Whoa, slow to the roll, people. There's no data-driven studies to say that people can't handle that. And in fact, there's a lot of research on the human medicine side to say that there's a huge benefit to having parents with their kids, especially during times of emergencies. There was a study that was done um, in, it was titled, The Involvement of Parents in Healthcare to, Provided to Hospitalized Children. And it was interesting because this wasn't just even, you know, people walking into the hospital. It was how involved do we want parents to be in the care of their children, medical care of their children, while the parents are, or while the kids are hospitalized in the actual hospital. And it's crazy to even think like, wait, would we consider having pet owners involved in the care of their pets when they're hospitalized in our care? Why not? Because here's what that study found. It concluded that the involvement of parents in the care provided to their children has many meanings and benefits for patients, 
nurses, and doctors. Specific strategies need to be developed with and for parents in order to mobilize parental competencies and contribute to increasing their autonomy and decision-making concerning the care provided to children. There was no negative side effects to having parents actually involved in the medical care of their kids while they were hospitalized in the hospital. And we're not even close to that, but that's where medicine, human medicine, is already looking at. Can we utilize parents as potential caregivers on some level when their kids are in the hospital. Here's another study that actually was published and um, an article picked it up and it talked about, you know, why moms and, and dads should be present when their kids are hospitalized or going to the emergency room. And I'm just going to quote some pieces of this out of here. When a mother or primary caregiver is not present enough, a child experiences high levels of stress. I would agree to that. I mean, what about our pets though? Do Does my dog experience a higher level of stress when I'm not present? Hell yes, absolutely. What about cats? I mean, cats don't really seem to care. Absolutely yes, because the pet owner, because the pet parent is a source of comfort even at times when the stress seems out of control. And here's a last study I wanna to talk to you. This was done out of the Boston Medical Center and it's actually pretty interesting. Parents were randomly assigned to three groups. One group was asked to leave when doctors were going to do an invasive procedure like drawing blood or inserting an IV catheter or even obtaining a urine sample. The second group was invited to stay and taught a technique that was going to help calm the children down. And a third group was invited to stay, but given no structure instructions on actually how to alleviate the child's fears. And the researchers wanted to ask them several questions. Did the kids seem to cry less? Because this is tangible, right? Like that's not somebody's opinion. They either cry or they don't cry. So did it cry less? Did the calming technique actually seem to reduce children's fears? And did the doctor's performance suffer? For example, like, did they have to repeat the procedure? Maybe they would have gotten the IV catheter in first time, but they were nervous because a parent was in the room. And here's the interesting thing. In all three groups, they tend to be equal in terms of the child's crying and their pain tolerance. There was no difference. The parent being there actually didn't cause the child to have less pain. And in fact, in the parents, in the groups that the parents stayed, the parents actually rated their children's pain as much higher than what the doctor rated it as. So the doctor had a rating for pain and the parent had a rating for pain. But in the group that the parents got to stay, they said that their child's pain was way, way higher than the doctors reported in the other groups, which was really interesting. Another important finding was that the doctors performed just as well. They actually didn't bobble under pressure. So if a doctor was going to get an IV catheter in, it didn't matter if the actual parent was there or not. There was no difference in the anxiety level of the doctors, actually, also. They measured the anxiety of the doctors both in the room and without. And their focus was on the child. So most of their anxiety of whether or not they were going to perform well didn't matter if the parent was in the room. It mattered on whether or not they felt comfortable with the actual patient, i.e. the child, which was very interesting. The only significant difference was in the anxiety level of the parent. Parent who did not stay with their children graded high levels of anger, frustration, and anxiety. Woo! Isn't that a telling study right there? Now I want you to think about that in veterinary medicine. 
And even if you still think, you know, we need to stay with curbside, we should still never have people come to the back. I want you to think about what I just said and think about that story. And it's not even a story, it's real life of someone watching their dog get hit by a car and then being told, I'm taking your dog to the back. I want you to think about how that person feels. Is it going to change that pet's behavior? Probably not. Is it going to change your behavior? No, because you're going to be so focused on dealing with that trauma case. But what does it mean for the owner of that pet? Everything. And what happens to that pet owner? They reduce their anxiety and they also get to see the valuable things that you as a veterinary team are doing. We have to stop being afraid of of pet owners, to be perfectly honest. Yes, we're pissing them off because we started doing these crazy things. What's even more maddening to me is the fact that we're still stuck on curbside and some people actually believe that curbside's faster. There's no way that curbside is faster. I actually timed it myself on a couple, couple different levels and one most recently was me being the actual pet owner. I had to bring my pet in to see an internist and I, they're still doing curbside. And yes, I understand. Here's the thing I want to stress. I want everybody to remain safe and healthy during whatever, if this is the pandemic still that we're in, which I think it's still called a pandemic, then yes, I want everybody to remain healthy and happy and safe. And we certainly want to keep our immune systems up. I also know that we are now past the threat of Omicron at this point in the pandemic. We have a lot of places that are removing mask mandates. And I also know of plenty of hospitals that have never stopped doing curbside. They took this curbside thing and they're continuing to do it and they still have never stopped doing it. So anyway, I went to this internist and this was past Omicron. Um, and they're all still doing curbside. There's big signs that say, do not enter the building. It's crazy. I mean, it's just crazy to me. But anyway, it's an appointment that literally I spoke to someone on the phone for 10 minutes. I spoke to the veterinarian for 10 minutes. I talked to the vet tech for about 10 minutes. So that's 20 minutes right there. And they took the time about 10 minutes to examine my cat. That's 30 minutes. The other hour, one hour was devoted to the, the frivolous stuff of the front desk calling me and taking payment over the phone. And then someone coming to and from my vehicle to deliver and return my cat to me. Because I know how slow curbside works, I actually went and got Starbucks. That's the honest truth. I For, for a total of 30 minutes of interacting with the actual veterinary team from the front desk to the technician to the doctors, um, I was there for 90 minutes. You cannot possibly tell me that was any faster. And it's not like they were seeing another appointment in between. I was their only appointment. So they managed to accomplish one appointment in 90 minutes. And yes, some of you, you might think your curbsides are a lot faster, but it's not. I mean, the reality is, is that curbside is a lot slower. You have a lot of walking time that has to occur. And there's also this huge disconnect from the client. So now let's talk about what we need to do. We need to start allowing clients, allowing pet owners to see what we do. We need to start trusting that they're going to actually probably behave okay. Parents of children and children under the age in which they can speak, they are advocates for their kids and yet they still manage to keep their shit together. On occasion, you're going to have somebody who can't keep their shit together and you might need to ask them to leave. I've never regretted bringing anyone to the back. And I work emergency medicine. To be perfectly honest, they're in shell shock usually. 
I usually say, I'm gonna bring you to the back, but I need you to stay aside so that the veterinary team can do their job. Please do not talk to the team. Someone will talk to you when we have a moment. They stand there clutching tissues, clutching their cell phone and sobbing. They're not maniacal, crazy people who are trying to murder the staff. I don't know where we think that they can't handle this. And a lot of times you can communicate a lot faster because now you have this person in the back and you can turn to him and say, I don't think he's going to make it. Do you want us to do CPR? They're right there. Think about the time it takes to, oh, hey, can you run up front? Ask this person about CPR. And then that person goes, well, what's going on? Listen, I just need to know if we can do CPR. Well, I don't know. Should I? Well, here's the thing. They're now standing next to you. Just ask them the question. They know what's going on because they're in touch with their actual pet that they're looking at. When you have somebody who's so disconnected and now you're running through the halls of the hospital, that's insane to me. The only time and some of the worst times of angry clients that I've ever experienced in my career were because I told pet owners they couldn't come to the back. And eventually they got so angry they either barged back or they started threatening the team up front. And that I I do regret. In my career at this point, I have started to see the huge value of keeping the pet and the owner together. We had a golden retriever. He was dying of lymphoma. It had metastasized to his lungs. He was on oxygen. He was not doing well. He had bilateral nasal oxygen lines. And this owner said to me, I'm just not ready to make the decision. And I, I, I don't want to leave him. I don't know what to do. You know what I said to her? Why don't you stay with him tonight? And the team almost killed me. I said, listen, she's going to stay overnight. And they said, she can't. And I said, she can. I said, we're going to put her up in this room and we're going to bring in a portable oxygen tanks. And why can she not stay? And they said, because that's ridiculous. What, what, she's a liability. I said, for she's a liability for what? Because her pet is dying? Like, what do you think? She's going to hold us all at gunpoint or something? Like, that's insane. This woman's hysterical. She just wants to spend the last waking moments with her dog and she's not ready for, to make the decision. And why should we be the ones to push her to make this decision? Like, this is a big deal decision. She should she should come to terms with this decision. It was a bit of a fight. They eventually gave in, mainly because I took no for an answer and I already promised this woman. I put her in an exam room. I brought, I brought a ton of bedding for her. I tried my best to make her what looked like a bed. And I would come in every like couple of hours and I would say hi to her and I would do my vitals. And together we walked this dog. And you know what? She was fantastic. And by the morning, she said, I think it's time. And thank you so much for giving me the gift of allowing me to be here with him and make the decision on my own terms. These are things we can't take away from pet owners. When our when the pets are dying and they're in their final moments, it's really about the living in that moment. And the fact is we cannot replace those moments. Once the pet is gone and we walk up front and say, I'm sorry, he died back there. That, to that pet owner, that's he died back there alone without me. And I didn't get to say goodbye. We can't replace that. And that living person has to learn to live with that guilt, that anxiety, and the thoughts and the images that they have in their head of their pet being alone in the back dying without them. When you look at it from that perspective, we really do need to reshape veterinary medicine because we are pissing off clients. We are pissing off customers. And the story of the innocent little kitten doesn't seem like much, but I'll tell you right now, 
There's, you got to be kidding me. If you can't do a vaccine in front of a pet owner and you have to take them to the back, what do you think that, that person's going to do? They're starting to start. Of course, they know the needle's going to hurt the kitten. Of course, they know the kitten's going to yell. Just preference and say to them, hey, just let you know, sometimes they let out a little yelp. And also, get your shit together with the fear-free stuff. Put some churu on the table. Let's make it a fun experience for the kitten. Like, I'm sorry. Can you not figure out how to give a vaccine in front of a customer? I'll back it up just one sentence and say, listen, I know that the vast majority of pet owners who fly off the radar is because we didn't do any of these things. Like, they were there for the vaccines. They were there for the blood draw. They were there for those. And they're still jerks. They really are. But we do need to start thinking outside the box. And I want to challenge each and every one of you. We are basically doing what pediatric um, medicine is doing in human medicine. These pets cannot advocate for themselves. And to remove them from the pet owner, unfortunately causes, as we learn through the data studies that I presented in this podcast, it causes more anxiety to actually the parent. And rightfully so. But this anxiety translates to aggression. It translates to uh, you know negative feelings towards the vet practice. And then how does that come down to the veterinary professional? Well, now the veterinary professional who's already exhausted, already dealing with burnout, already dealing with compassion fatigue, is now having to manage this client and they're upset because you took their baby away from them. So I know this was a lot and this is honestly a bigger, bigger conversation and doing podcasts like we could go on and on, but let's face it, I'm already a half an hour. For me, usually I try to keep them in about 20, no more than 25 minutes. So for me, this is a really long podcast, but I want to challenge you. I wanted you to listen to this. I wanted you to reshape your mindset. How does it feel to be that pet owner when you take their fur kid away from them? How does that feel? feels like garbage. I'll tell you that. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys. I'm sorry. This was such a long podcast. I want to challenge each and every one of you, the way that you view uh, pet parents, the way that you handle your clients. I want you to start getting uncomfortable by getting clients more comfortable with coming to the back, seeing what you do, have transparency. They're going to have better buy-in. Trust me on this. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, they are working hard. They do love animals. No, they're not money grubbing. And yes, you all have to have these conversations in your hospitals, but I challenge each and every one of you, let's stop doing what we're currently doing. I'm not saying going back to the 1920s where we're spaying and neutering dogs in their kitchen table in front of a client. That's probably a no, but how can we involve the pet owner more than what we currently are doing so that we can have them being happier, which in the end helps us tremendously. Thank you guys so much for listening. Keep on being a unicorn and please check out all my other blogs, vlogs, and podcasts at vetteamtraining.com.